to Food Navigator Asia's monthly podcast, the FNA Food and Beverage Trailblazers. This is a series where we speak to and get to know more about groundbreaking food and beverage firms in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as the people behind them and their stories. I am Pearlie, the editor of Food Navigator Asia, and as always, I am your host for this series. Joining me today is Eric Huang, co-founder at Yate and Zaya, both better-for-you beverage brands that are playing in the social space. We'll talk more about all of that shortly, but first of all, hello, Eric. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Pearly. Um, I hope you're doing well. I'm very happy to be on the show, and um, I'm excited to talk more about Yate, Zaya, and all things beverage. It's really great to have you here today. And I think the first thing I'd like to start off with is to get more background from you on your work with, you know, Better For You Beverages, as you mentioned, you know, from Zaya, which is the first hot seltzer brand in China, to Yate, which is a Yerba Mate energy drink brand. So we know Better For You in general is growing very rapidly, of course, and even more so in the beverage space. So I am wondering how you have seen this space evolve over the past few years and, you know, how Zaya and Yate fit into this. Um, consumers are becoming much more more aware of health trends and they're much more health conscious themselves and and you know actually taking into consideration what they're putting into their bodies right um i think historically or you know as carbonated soft drinks and many other soft drinks entered the market it was really one thing it was taste and sweetness um, and you see that with very conventional products like coca-cola pepsi snapple and etc um, which are very very high in sugar and i think the consumers are now being more uh, educated on what sugar is and its effects to the body and and why too much of it is not a good thing. So um, I think just the general increased awareness in health has been really leading that. Um, and, you know, that's played a big role in consumers wanting to have both, right, um, products that taste good and are, are, are healthy and better for you. Um, in addition to that, I think a lot of it, too, is you know, people want choice just in general. You know, they're willing to pay up for better for you products. Um, you know, that comes with increased disposable income and, and um, you know, just a general rising middle class around the world. So, you know, better for you products, you know, started really in the US. Um, but as you see in developing markets or developed markets, um, that trend is following suit in those places as well. Just following on a little bit, you know, on the trends that you did mention, I am wondering because, you know, you do work both in Asia and also in the United States. And I think you mentioned some of these trends starting in the United States and moving on to markets in Asia. So I also wanted to ask you what you are seeing in terms of the differences you are seeing between you know, these two markets, you know, how things are evolving from one place going to the other. Um, in the alcohol space, which is more relevant to Zaya, um, you know, alcohol consumption is, is really occasion driven, right? So um, hard seltzers, um, you know, over the last five or so years, especially RTDs, have really taken off in the U.S. And that's because of the, you know, large, large amounts of home consumption in the U.S. You know, people have bigger homes, people have bigger refrigerators, people have home parties. And the convenience of RTDs or ready-to-drink alcoholic beverages are, are very important, right? Also, you know, the the the... Just the sheer frequency, I think, of how often and how long people drink in the U.S. is quite different than in parts of Asia. And so, again, um, that, that makes for a, a really strong occasion for ready-to-drink alcoholic beverages. Whereas I think in, the, in, in APAC or regions of Asia, um, the offtake or the popularity of uh, ready-to-drink alcoholic beverages are, is not as prevalent, right? Because I think for a lot of places in Asia, consuming alcohol is very much 
um, it's a very special occasion. It has a strong ritual behind it, particularly in the form of gifting or or like something that's very, very celebratory, right? It's not as casual. It's not as frequent. Um, so in, with that being said, when people look at what type of products they'd like to consume during an alcoholic occasion, it's generally something that's more premium, higher price point. Um, you know, something that makes you feel like, okay, this is a, this is a very special occasion, and that's why you see things very, that are very popular, such as expensive bijos and cognacs. Now, in terms of just general better few beverages, I think a, a, a big thing is, you know, the types of function, the functional ingredients, and then the the localization of tastes, for, for example, right? There are a lot of flavors um, in, in better few beverages that are popular in the US that aren't popular in, in Asia and vice versa, and in the types of functional ingredients that you would see. So, um, you know, in, 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 in Asia, for example, you might see more traditional Chinese medicine ingredients in products um, than you would in the US. But actually, what's really interesting is you're starting to see that shift a little bit, or at least, you know, there's a merging of the two. You know, we're starting to see more ginseng type products um, uh, in the US, or we're starting to see products like ashwagandha in the US, which has been long used in Asia for a very long time. So I think um, those trends will start to, you know, converge with one another. And I think that's really exciting. Also right now, I'd like to zoom in a little bit on Yate, which is your newest venture, and that's the energy tea. So I know you decided to focus this brand using Yerba Mate. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this plant as well, you know, why you feel there's such a strong potential market for this? Really, Yerba Mate is a form of herbal tea that has its um, um, origins from South America. Um, it's widely popular in the region, but you're really, you're also starting to see it take off elsewhere in the world, particularly in North America. Um, you know, for those of you that watched the recent World Cup, um, Argentina and, and Leo Messi um, were seen publicly drinking Yerba Mate um, um, throughout the World Cup. And, and from a PR standpoint, that really helped uh, this really special ingredient. But um, Really, you know, what's so cool about your mate is it, it's really considered by many people to be a sort of super superfood, um, not only because it's got this really natural high caffeine content, but also for its, you know, it's high in antioxidants, it's high in other um, vitamins and nutrients, and it's got some health benefits that are really interesting. You know, the, the health benefit I would like to focus on is the fact that it has this sort of this trifecta of ingredients that include um, um, theobromine, theophylline, and uh, caffeine. And so the three of these together um, create this sort of euphoric uh, caffeine high, if you will, that doesn't give you the same crash or jitters from, from coffee. Um, uh, so for those of you that aren't familiar with theobromine and theophylline, theobromine is, is, an ingredient, is a compound that's found in chocolates. Um, you know, some people when they eat chocolate find that it gives you this sort of euphoric, um, you know, elevated feeling, and then and then theophylline comes from a lot of teas, particularly green teas, and in conjunction with caffeine, has this really nice, mild, uplifting uh, energy feeling that you get, um, which is quite smoother overall, um, and has less of those unpleasant side effects that you might get from other caffeinated products. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things that makes us so excited about this is that it's readily available. Um, it's easy to grow. It tastes good. You know, it might have a, it might be an acquired taste for some, but it's got just a really nice herbal, uh, earthy taste. I would say for those of you in Asia who are tea drinkers, it, it probably sits somewhere between like an oolong or a jasmine. Um, and yeah, we just find that, you know, there's a lot of consumers who are looking for alternative caffeine options um, as opposed to your typical coffee or, or green teas. I know you mentioned that you know the Yoruba mate is a lot is, is gaining a lot of popularity in 
uh, North America and certain other regions. But I'm wondering within APEC, are you also seeing that, you know, Yoba Mate is sort of gain, is popular or gaining popularity or there's just very strong potential for consumers here to accept it, grow accustomed to it, all that kind of thing? I think, you know, you have your very early adopters who are either big fans of soccer or football in some regions, you may call it, or fans of Leo Messi, and that's how they might have been aware of it or, or know about it for the first time. You know, interestingly enough, in, in, in China, you could go online to, on places like Tmall or JD, and um, you'll see uh, women searching for it because of its uh, perceived uh, weight loss benefits. You know, I, I don't know if there's enough evidence to substantiate those claims, but that's what people are searching uh, when they look for your mate. So um, there are people out there looking for it. Um, but I, I do think, you know, to be very honest uh, and candid, I think it's 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 still early for your mate in Asia. Um, also, just because there's such a strong ingrained tea culture in Asia, right? So, you know, yerba mate may be deemed as as an unconventional tea or not your traditional tea. And so I do think there's it's going to take time to educate the general consumer in Asia about yerba mate and why they should drink it. Also, the last time that we spoke, you know, you also highlighted your focus is on, you know, energy for the socializing crowd, the partying crowd, essentially, you know, with Yate. So I'm curious why you feel that this is the sort of best demographic to target for an energy team as opposed to other groups that might you know be looking for energy boosts you know the sports crowd the students all of that one thing we're seeing particularly in the us and really in a lot of other places is that in nightlife occasions bars uh, nightclubs um, even restaurants to some extent um, people are there to socialize have a good time party um, you know and just celebrate um, but in these in these channels, we found that they have really not that many options when it comes to energy uh, choices, right? You have um, some energy drinks and really probably only one that I won't name by name, but I think you can kind of figure out who we're talking about. And then you might have coffee, but it's really limited uh, in the energy space. But why is that in the, in the occasion where you probably most need energy? Um, there's not many options for you. You know, if you look at fitness and and um, maybe going to work or, um, you know, that space is already really crowded with other incumbent energy drink brands. And so we're going after an area where we believe there's a massive white space. Very nice. And I think that brings us very nicely into my next question, you know, about your plans for Yate moving forward. You know, where are you looking to go from here? You know, right now we're just really focused on building out our distribution in, in Los Angeles where we're based. We're very optimistic about our chances in Asia just because of, you know, myself and my co-founders experience there, our relationships in the market. And same thing, we believe that the that the problem that we're solving in the U.S. exists in, in Asia as well. Well, that does make a lot of sense. And also, I, I think, yeah, it's the same thing. There is the nightlife here in Asia as well. There's also a lot of consumers looking for those energy products here. So I think that does make sense. Um, okay, I, I'd also like to sort of like, you know, move back a little bit more to your own entrepreneurial journey. I, think I did see that, you know, your background was initially a little bit with banking. And then you mentioned you were with, um, you know, nutrition supplements. I think it was Herbalife for a while. So one was very finance and the other is very nutrition focused. So I also do need to ask, you know, from a personal perspective, how did this all bring you into the better for you beverages sector here as an entrepreneur? Um, very quickly, you know, I started my career out of college in, in finance because I think um, as many Asian immigrants, I grew up in the U.S. and by their parents were told to either become doctors lawyers and I went for the third best option <laughs> but um, after a very brief stint in finance I actually went into consumer products um, first in the vitamins and dietary supplement space so 
um, I did that for a couple of years and in and, and, and corporate development and strategy. And then that brought me to Asia. I was sent to China as an expat. Um, after a couple of years in China, I, I wanted a break from corporate. Um, I, I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit and, and of wanting to do my own thing. But I think to be very, very honest, it was it was a bit frightening to take that leap. And I think um, it was a perfect combination of, of you know, being in China during COVID and not being able to go home and just having the time to reflect about what I really wanted to do with my life. Um, I thought it was a good opportunity for me to take that leap. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's it's a combination of foolishness <laughs> and optimism. And I think I definitely had both, probably more of the former. And so um, at that time, you know, hard seltzers, ready to drink alcoholic beverages were really, really taking off in the US. And my thought was, hey, there's 1.4 billion people in China. You know, hopefully there's some, there's enough people there that, that they may find the need for a, a similar product. So that's really how it started. Um, I, I didn't, you know, despite working in vitamins and dietary supplements, which is consumer goods, you know, it's still very different than beverage. Beverage has a lot of nuance and, and things that I frankly didn't know. So um, again, I made just about every mistake as you can imagine, but um, you know, it, the, the whole process was, was, was very, very rewarding. What do you feel, you know, was the sort of biggest difference or the, between what you were doing previously, whether it was finance, whether it was nutrition, you know, and what, you know, you're doing now in food or, you know, what shocked you the most about entering, not, not food necessarily, of course, but the beverages sector, what shocked you the most? For me, it was two things. And I think other beverage or even food uh, founders can resonate with this. Um, I'll stick to the, the the differences between the vitamin space and beverage, because I think there's, it's more similar, but also different. Um, I think there's two things that really stood out to me where I, I felt like I had a really steep learning curve. Um, number one was just the importance of marketing and trade marketing and brand marketing and, and things as something like packaging, right? Um, uh, I'll explain why. So in vitamins and dietary supplements, yes, there's certainly still branding, there's certainly still marketing, but so much of the product is built on its function and its efficacy. For example, take this vitamin C for immune health, for et cetera, right? For this, this, and that. Take vitamin D for bone health, for, for, for this other benefit. And so, so much of the marketing and the reason to buy is driven around the product's function, right? Whereas in beverage, something where it's purely based on taste, it's it's very subjective in nature. So the importance of your packaging design, the importance of uh, trade marketing materials, POSM materials, the importance of social media marketing, and all these things combined, I think that was a very um, steep learning curve. Number two was just the, sh the sheer capital intensive nature and the labor intensive nature of beverage, right? Um, you know, in vitamins and diet dietary supplements, a lot of the products can be sold online, right? It's easy to ship, it's lightweight. Um, it, it, it resonates well with digital marketing, whereas beverage is very hard to do online, right? It's it's Logistically, it's a challenge. The products are so heavy, they're so big. Um, and it's something that it's an impulse buy, right? You have to try it, you have to see it, you have to hold it in your hand. So in order to get it into those channels, in order to effectively distribute, you need labor, you need people on the ground. So whether that's from the, by the form of a distributor or your own sales force, you know, it's very boots on the ground. It's very traditional. Very good insights. Thank you very much, Eric. Um, I guess this also brings me into the next thing I'd like to ask, which is, you know, whether there is anything you wish you had known when you were starting out, you know, when you were taking the leap into beverages, you know, anything you think you might have changed if you had known this in advance? I think it's important to try to figure things out yourself, right? Um, there's going to be people that reach out to help you. There's going to be consultants that 
uh, you know, say they can help you or, or are, are experts in their own right. But I think what's really important is for you to go out there, test something, learn or make mistakes or, you know, uh, prove yourself wrong or prove your hypothesis right. Um, but the importance is just going through the, the process and learning it yourself. And then potentially once you've built a strong enough understanding, a foundation for whatever it is you're trying to achieve, only then can you effectively use a third party partner or bring on someone onto your team. I think that the thing was just really not trying to cut corners or find a a silver bullet solution that would solve all my problems. I would have just tested and learned more and um, started things on a smaller scale and and tried to I would have tried to instill that philosophy in, in a lot of the things that that I did. Any advice for those who are looking to make that change, who are looking to go into food, you know, or rather beverage entrepreneurship like you have, who are debating now and wondering about whether they should take that leap? Talk to customers or talk to potential customers on, on what their habits are, um, what they like to buy, things that, they, that, that stick out to them or, or if they find interesting. Um, ask them questions about, you know, what they like in packaging, what they like about taste and and um, if you can afford a, a, a consumer study by Nielsen or Spins IRI, don't worry, you know, you have a group of friends that you can go to, you have family members, go to a supermarket and, and ask people there. And so I think, you know, before you really jump into something like this, again, because it's so hard, it's so labor intensive, it's so capital intensive, you know, do, do some of your due diligence first um, as much as you can. Uh, just remind yourself that you know, if you do take this leap, as, as exciting as it sounds to make something for yourself, um, at the end of the day, it has to be a viable business and, and, uh, and it, it needs to work for the consumers as well. Thank you so much for joining me today, Eric. It was so great to have you on the podcast here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I had a blast and um, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. And thank you also everyone for listening to this podcast as well. And I wish everyone a great day ahead. For Food Navigator Asia, this is Pearly, signing off.